Good morning, church. I don't know about you, but when we do communion, do you ever stop and think about eternity when we will all gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb and just have dinner together all the time without any sickness or, or struggle or pain? Um, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty awesome thought. And nothing against our other musicians or anything. Please, I love the piano and the bass and all of that. But, Ed, do you think there's going to be mandolins in heaven? Okay. All right. All right. Sorry, if you don't like bluegrass or mandolins, I'm sorry. I just, I love the mandolin. All right. Um, so, this morning as we come to our text, I want to start out with a question um, and you have to promise me that you'll be honest with yourself. You don't, you don't have to yell out your answer. But um, I just wonder, what are you focusing on this morning? Um, as you came in here, even right now, what are you focusing on? What are you thinking of? Um, and I'm not talking about like if you walk through the door and somebody was handing out a questionnaire and we we're going to do some sort of retrospective study or something like that. Um, Carrie Brown, that look, means looking backwards. So, um, but, uh, you know, not something that you would just do here after we take communion and, and, you know, you're really trying to be really biblical and church-like, but honestly, what, what do you focus on? What are you, are you already thinking about when you leave here this morning? Maybe you're thinking about something that's going to happen tomorrow morning. Uh, maybe you're thinking about something that happened last week. And I don't know about you, but um, this, this, as I prepared this, um, it was very convicting because how many of you would admit that it's very easy for you to focus on things and lose track of everything else? Maybe even lose track of your family. Uh, maybe lose track of what's important. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we, we do this on purpose. Maybe you know that there's something coming up and you just really try to focus on something that, you know, um, lots of times I think this happens on Friday evening, right? You know, Monday's coming really quickly, so I'm just really going to immerse myself in this weekend. I'm going to focus on this week and not worry about next week. And so as we go through this this morning, that's the question I just kind of want you to, to, to search through your thoughts and your feelings and really be honest with yourself um, about what you, what you focus on, what, what um, gets your attention. And as we come to our text this morning, we're, we're coming to the point in Jacob's life um, where he's going to come face to face with Esau. And in, in the past couple of chapters, um, the past few weeks, we've, we've seen Jacob's actions as he's been preparing um, to meet uh, Esau. And he's, and he's anticipating this. He's focusing on this. And remember, and watch the look. You can actually get ahead of me. Turn to Genesis 27. Because it wasn't a great um, parting, if you will, between Jacob and Esau. And I want us to be fresh, this to be fresh in our minds. Because it is the reality of the situation. I'm not going to um, submit to you this morning that we should be a bunch of stoics and just not worry about or focus on or think about reality, the things that, that happen in our lives. Um, but it is important as we consider um, Jacob's actions, the way things actually were as he left Esau. So in chapter 27, turn with me to verse 41. Verse 41. 
We have recorded for us, it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, um, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay there with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets that what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So Jacob is being ushered away to Laban, because Esau is going to kill him, okay? So that is the way that they parted, and it's very important that, that we remember that. So with that in mind, let's go to our text this morning. Turn with me to chapter 33 of Genesis. And we'll be reading 1 through 20, chapter 33, verses 1 through 20. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So we'll stop right there. Just imagine this, okay? Try to imagine this in your own mind's eye, all right? So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near. They and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, being Jacob, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house, made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar... Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his, his tent. 
There he erected an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we look at this reunion between Jacob and Esau, I just pray that you would help reveal truth to us. You would help this to apply to our lives. We would see both Jacob's and Esau's actions. And we would contemplate how we focus on the things in our lives, the challenges in our lives, in light of who you are and your promises. So, Father, I just pray that you would be with us over the few moments that we have. And I pray that you would be honored in everything that we say and do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we begin to look at our passage this morning, there's just a couple things I want to point out, kind of lay the groundwork. Number one, as we go through this, you will probably quickly realize, you may have already, that there are details that are not included here that I personally, I don't know about you, would like to have. I would like to know more about why Jacob did certain things, why Esau did certain things, but in God's sovereignty and his providence, he did not reveal those to us. But because we have the whole canon of Scripture, we can look back and we can look forward, and we can come to a pretty good idea of why some of these things were happening. So I acknowledge that, okay? Um, some of the things that, that I say um, after studying, you're not going to find necessarily here. But again, I hope that I'm able to point out to you, and again, we can draw a pretty safe conclusion. The other thing, too, that I've come up with a... Um, a, uh, an equation for us to help us work through this. And that's kind of funny because I hate math. Um, but I'm pretty proud of this, so just humor me. Um, so what we have here is God's word, right? Everybody agree with that? This is God's promises, all right? And then we have our focus, the things that we focus on in our lives. So we have God's promises plus or minus our focus equals our Christian walk, the way we go through our lives. So again, explain that a little bit further. We have the Bible, God's promises, God's word, right? And then we have what, what are we looking at? Where do we cast our gaze on a day-in, day-out basis? Specifically, when we meet trials, what, what do we look at? What are we searching for? And that equals the way we move through our lives, how we conduct ourselves day in and day out as Christians, especially for those in the room who are believers. We should have a walk, right? We, we should take the light into the world. So I want you to think about that. We'll go back to that, um, that equation several different times. So let's just take the first part of that equation, God's promises. Let's remind ourselves of God's promises to Jacob. Turn back with me to chapter 28. Genesis 28, verse 10. And again, this whole time, don't lose sight of what is going on, what we just read, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to put all of these things together for us. So chapter 28 and verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, Lord, Yahweh, God, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. 
The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land... For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke and his, uh, from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz as the, at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So real quickly, let's just make a list of all the promises that we just see in this one passage. I'll just read them to you. You can, you can write them down. So number one, God, the Lord, Yahweh, is just that. He is pronouncing, I am Lord. I am Yahweh. I am God. He's saying that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac. He is saying that he will give Jacob and his offspring the land on which Jacob was lying. He promises that the offspring would be like the dust of the earth. He's saying, he's promising, he's decreeing through Jacob and his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And let me just stop there. What is this pointing to? Jesus Christ, right? This is what this is pointing to. We see the gospel even in Genesis, just as a side note. And then lastly, and more importantly, specifically to our passage this morning, God promises that he is with Jacob, that he will keep Jacob, and he will bring him back to the promised land. So these are God's promises. But it's more than just a promise. This is God's will, is it not? See, God's promises are different than promises. How many of you break your promises within maybe five minutes of making them? Right, you promise, you, 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 you promise your spouse that you'll do things. You promise the kids, okay, yeah, yeah, we can't go today, but we'll go tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and you don't do it, right? We have to be careful that we don't look at our promises like God's promises. This is God's revealed truth. This is his will. God does not change. He doesn't make this promise and hope that it happens. He makes these promises and it will happen because he said it will happen. So this is different. We have to look at this from a godly perspective. When God makes a, makes a promise, it will happen. And there's something else. When we look at applying this to our own lives, little spoiler alert, we're going to look at this. God's made promises to us. God's made promises to you and to me. So let's go back to our text. Chapter 33, verse 1. It says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. 
Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So picture this. There's no chapter breaks, right, in the original manuscripts. So Jacob has just finished wrestling with God, right? And so he, he has been wrestling all night. You saw that last week. He's been wrestling all night, which is exhausting. He's got to be exhausted. And he looks up. And he sees an unknown distance away, enough that he can see Esau coming at him, right? Esau with 400 men. And so what does he do? I think he scrambles. I, I, think, that, I think we see here that now's the time, right? This, this danger is coming at him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. So what does he do? He lines up his wives and children and doesn't just line them up in, you know, random order, he lines them up in preference order, right? Least important to the most important. And just as a side note, there are a lot of commentaries who, thinks that, who think that this actually comes into play in Joseph's life when he's sold into slavery by his brothers. This could be a defining moment. And just picture that. Husbands, picture this. You're freaking out and you're going to line up... Forget the whole multiple wives thing, all right? Wives, sorry. Forget all of that, okay? That's awkward. But imagine this is what you're going to do, right? You're going to line up your wives and children in a certain order, right? Think about the statement that that makes, right? And why is Jacob doing this? Has everybody lined up? We're not told. These are one of these instances. We're not told exactly why he does this. It could be that, um, that, that he's just wanting to, you know, show them in a certain order. It could be that he's thinking, okay, well, my servants up here, it's okay if maybe they run into problems. But Joseph back here and Rachel, remember, what did he say about Rachel? Who did he love first? Rachel, right? So he goes ahead of them. He lines them up and he goes ahead of them. Now, this is one of these moments where it's a little twinkle of hope, right? He's already sent his flocks ahead of him. He has sent everything ahead of himself. But now he goes in front of his family. And why does he do that? Is he, is he just being humble? I think he was definitely humbled. I think he definitely was humbled. We see that in his wrestling with God. Right? We see in verse, uh, back in chapter 32, in verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place uh, Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Right? He has met God face to face, and he has still been delivered. And now, while he's arranging all of his wives, he's limping around, right? Because God touched his hip. So he has a long lasting effect of this interaction with, with God. As I said, was he scared? And thinking if he shows the utmost respect to Esau, that somehow Esau will forgive him. Probably. Was he trying to make amends for deceiving his father and stealing Esau's blessing? I think it's probably all of these. I think it's probably all of these things. And, and I don't know about you, but I kind of do the same thing. Does anybody else in here 
freak out when, like, when something you perceive something bad is going to happen. Like, and you're just scurrying around. You're trying to line things up. You're trying to make sure things don't go bad, right? I often picture myself as, have you ever seen the, uh, the circus actor where, wherever where they're spinning the plates? And the guy spinning the plates just running around trying to keep the plates spinning. I do that a lot. And I kind of see um, uh, Jacob doing the same thing. He's trying to make sure everything is set up so maybe, just maybe, Esau won't kill him. And so I think we can understand where Jacob is. I think if we can think about this, we definitely can understand this. And as Pastor Dan pointed out two or three weeks ago, remember Jacob instigated this, right? Jacob instigated this meeting. So I think he's weighed down with guilt. He's wanting to make things right with Esau. And so we can relate a lot to this. The thing that I think may make us scratch our heads, especially in light of, of us reading the earlier passage about God's promises, is why would Jacob be afraid? And that's a good question that maybe we can ask ourselves. Why would Jacob be afraid? What did God say? Remember all the I wills? I will keep you. I am with you. I will bring you back here. I will make your generations, your generations will bless the world. So, why? Why is Jacob fearful? I believe that fear is Jacob's thorn in the flesh. I believe that's why he's struggling. Because, because it's, it's his go-to. I'm sure you all have go-tos. Some are good, some are bad. I'm a worrier. My go-to, would anybody agree with me that I can worry without even trying? Like, it just comes natural. Like, it just, I just start worrying about that. I'm like, what in the hell? Where'd that come from? And I think, I think Jacob is there too. Let, let me try to prove this to you. Turn forward to um, chapter 34 and verse 30. We'll get there next week, uh, maybe next week or the week after. After this whole interaction with Esau, remember? And bad things are going to happen to his family, specific his daughter Dinah. But in chapter 34, verse 30, it says this, Then Jacob said to uh, Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, how does that reconcile with God's promises? Directly to him. Sometimes as I'm reading God's word and I see these, these, um, these people in God's word, I look at them and say, I judge them because I say, okay, well, come on, Jacob. Like you saw, you saw Jacob's ladder. Like you saw God decree these things. You wrestled with God. But I would submit to you this morning, we are, we are better off because we have the whole revealed canon of scripture. We know what's going to happen. We know why things happened from the day the earth was created, and we know how it's all going to end. So, is it even, like, how is it possible that Jacob be afraid? How can he be afraid right now? Because God promised that he would protect him. So, in light of this, I want to ask you a question, another question. What is your Esau? 
What is your Esau? What is the thing that you're facing? Is it someone? Is it something? Are you struggling with your marriage? Are you anxious about work or your finances? Are you wrestling with anxiety or, or depression? What is the thing? I think we all have a thing. It may just be trying to be a good parent, right? Or a good witness or whatever the case may be. So let's go back real quick to our equation. Again, to remind you, it's God's promises plus or minus our focus equals our walk. So we look at God's promise. Webster's Dictionary defines promise like this. A declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specific. Or a legally binding declaration that gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or to claim the performance of a specified act. So as you're thinking about your Esau, has God declared anything in his word that would give you a reason to expect something? Some of you are shaking your heads. Let's, let's look at one. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and go to verse 22. Verse 22, it says this, And he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For this life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they, ne- uh, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Or how much more value, um, of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can a- add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, what's he talking about? Do you see Jesus considers the span of our lives as a small thing? He says, if then you are not able to do a small, a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So he's saying, instead, seek the kingdom. Why are you worried about all these things? Seek the kingdom and all of these things will be added to you. So God promises to take care of us. 
He'll give us what we need, or what we need. And the other thing that we're told, a promise, a decree, is there's nothing that is happening in your life that's separated from God. Or, to put it another way, God declares what he will direct in our lives, how he will direct our lives. Romans 11, 36 says this, but um, for all things are from him and through him and to him. To him be glory. Actually, turn over there with me real quick. Romans 11. Sorry, I'm making you jump around. But I think it's important that we see these passages. Romans chapter 11. And he says that for from him and through him and to him are all things. But the Apostle Paul starts ahead of that. And I think this is important for us to see. In verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrupulable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has, his, or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then he goes into the exaltation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul's talking about there, he's talking about our focus. You see, our focus either complements or distracts from what God has promised or decreed in his word. I want to make sure that I'm very clear. I am not insinuating that somehow our actions, our focus changes God's promise. God's promises never change, right? That would mean that the Bible changes. And we know that's not true. But it's our outlook, right? It's our outlook. It's where we cast our eyes. It's what we concentrate on. That's where the potential conflict happens. And we see back in our text, God's will, God's promise is revealed, Verse 4, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. How many of you would have even written a script like this? Right? All of this building up to this moment, the last time, the villain says he's going to kill this person. And how does it all, like, that's a kind of like a doubt, like, oh, seriously, like we're looking for a big battle or something. Nope. He comes and he weeps and he cries and he embraces his brother. The one that the last interaction was, I'm going to kill you. But God's plan is revealed right here to Jacob. So God has softened Esau's heart. He's protected Jacob. And they have a sweet, unexpected reunion. And I think this is a perfect case study for the equation we keep going back to. God promised that he would keep Jacob, would deliver him, minus what Jacob kept keeping his focus on, right? And so what was Jacob doing? Running around, right? Remember the night before, he sends all of his, his, um, his belongings across the Jabbok River, right? And he's just in this turmoil, and he's wrestling with God, and now he's lining up his wives, and how does it all culminate? A blessed reunion, tears, a wonderful time with brother, between brothers. And I think this is what we do. We, we get hyper-focused on what we perceive is happening. We want all the answers right now. Do we not? We want to know like, okay, yeah, God, that's great. That's your plan. But I really, can you just let me know how things are going to go? 
Like, I, I really, it would be really nice. It would help me sleep at night if you just kind of revealed to me what you're going to do. We want everything to make sense in this moment, wherever we are in our lives. Instead of submitting ourselves to God's will, like Paul, like we read in Romans, and embrace that God is above us. And we can't know his mind. And I hope this doesn't offend you because I apply this to myself and I do this all the time. I think subconsciously we try to bring God down to our level. Right? We try to bring the mind of God down to our level because we want to understand. Right? I would even submit sometimes we think it is our right to understand. And when it doesn't work, what happens? We become fearful, we become anxious, our walk strays. And this, is, this does not fit with the promises of God. B.B. Warfield, some of you know that name, put it like this. He's quoted as saying this. If men must have reconciliation for all conflicting truths before they will believe any if they must see how the promises of God are, be, are to be fulfilled before they will obey his commands, if duty is to hang upon the satisfying of the understanding instead of the submission of the will, then the greater number of us will find the road to faith and the road of duty blocked at the outset. Do you see what he's saying there? If we have to have everything lined up to our satisfaction, our understanding, our way, our walk with God is blocked right at the beginning. We can't get, we can't get past the word go. And I'm, I'm afraid, I'll speak for myself again, that's what we do. Right? It's easy in church. We sing. We have wonderful musicians. We have people that serve us. But then when we go out into the world, it doesn't make sense. Does anybody think the world makes sense right now? And so we get caught up in it. What's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen with the housing market? What's going to happen with the next vaccine? And we just lose sight of God. It's all his plan. No one will thwart God's will. We stop. I actually think part of our problem is that we stop really contemplating and, and meditating on God's promises on the Bible. I really think that's what, what happens. And again, I'm applying this to myself. I'm not looking down at you. I do the same thing. We stop believing in God and our faith, and, and we, we don't cling to all of the promises in the Bible, and we cling to the things of the world. And we see this in Jacob. Look with me at verse 5. It says, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And so Esau, seeing all these people coming, he says, who are all these people? And Jacob admits, it, it's all, it's God's blessings. God is graciously giving me all of these people. And so again, I think there's a lot of similarity between us and Jacob. Is there anyone in here with children, actually even those without children, who would not agree with me that you have bad days and good days, I understand this, but that children are a blessing, right? Would anybody argue with me? Especially if your kids are here, don't raise your hand. Um, 
But we understand that. We would admit, and some of you have had a lot of trouble having children, and you understand God's giving us children, it is a blessing. So Jacob isn't some heathen who doesn't understand God, believe in God. He's much like you and I. So he acknowledges this, but then when we go to verse 8, do you see what happens? He just as quickly turns from acknowledging that God has graciously given him all these things, and what is he trying to do in verse 8? It says, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company? Why, why are you bringing all these people here? What does Jacob say? To find favor in the sight of my Lord. Is that a little, in your Bible, is that a little L or a big L? Capital L, big L, right? Little L. He's calling Esau his Lord, not the Lord God, not Yahweh. He's seeking the favor of Esau. And again, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not minimizing um, Jacob what appears to be wanting to reconcile with Esau. There's nothing wrong with that. Are we called to reconcile, to forgive 70 times 7? Yes, we absolutely are. There's nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong when we apologize that we want to be forgiven, right? But where do we go wrong? We go wrong when we lose sight of our heavenly father and get, we get tunnel visioned on the approval of man. We want the approval of man and we're, we, lose, we lose sight of God's promises and meeting his expectation. And so as we go down to verse 11, we turn a corner in this whole interaction. And Jacob says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So there has been real reconciliation here. Esau has accepted Jacob's gift. And at this time, if you accepted a gift and did not return something in favor, there has been reconciliation. Restitution has been paid. Jacob has been forgiven. So things are going well for Jacob. We're running short on time. But I want us to see this morning real quickly, where does Jacob go? Again, we see his default. Verses 12 through 17. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. So Esau's saying, hey, let's go together. Let's travel together, right? And Jacob says to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are to care for me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock and uh, that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. Right? So he's saying, he's being a little dramatic, I think, but everyone's going to die if we're just driven hard one day. Let me go slowly, and I'll meet you where you're going. But does he do that? Jacob goes back to his old ways, does he not? And we go uh, skipping on down for the sake of time. So Esau returned um, that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed where? To Seir, where he said he was going to go? No, he actually turns and goes a different direction. And this actually will have long-lasting ramifications because what has Jacob done here? 
He has lied. He has broken the ninth commandment. He has lied directly to Esau's face. He said, oh, no, no, I'll come with you. But he turns and goes the opposite direction. And actually, if he would have just continued from where he actually bought land, if he would have just continued 30 more miles, do you know where he would have been? He would have been in the promised land, exactly where God wanted him to be, but he stopped. And it actually says in verse 18, and Jacob came what? Safely. I think we can glean from this that Jacob, again, was seeking safety. And that may be why he didn't go with Esau. Esau was not a believer. Seir was not a, a, a biblical, God-fearing city. So he may have just feared to go with him. There could be any number of reasons. Again, this is one of these instances um, where we're not told exactly what would happen. So he goes a different direction, and he buys land. And let's go to our equation once again. What did God promise? That he would give Jacob the promised land. That's the promise. But again, it seems Jacob again went to safety. He came safely to the city of Shechem. So again, God's promise of the promised land minus Jacob's concern about safety actually equals him coming to a place where his daughter will suffer. Spoiler alert. Something terrible is going to happen to Dinah we'll see next week. As we've seen this morning, God has promised to take care of us. I hope I've showed you that. And I want us to see um, an example of how we should live our lives. Turn with me uh, to John 17. John 17. And we know this, many of us know this very well, and we don't see it here, but in the parallel Gospels, Jesus is praying, and he's in turmoil, and he's sweating drops of blood, but this tells us exactly what Jesus was praying. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And where is his focus? 
What is he focusing on? He's focusing, he's focusing on eternity. Right? He's going to his death. He knows exactly where he's going. And I don't know about you, but that is a great example. Right? When we go through ter- turmoil, when you're facing your Esau, I'm facing my Esau, we can go and we can remember the truth of the gospel. He kept his view on the Father's promises. And what did God do? God kept his promises and delivered Jesus, right? Raised up Jesus. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Some of your ways? All of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Is that a promise? Is that God's will for your life that he will make your path straight if you acknowledge him? Right? He's telling us where our focus should be. See, when we don't trust God, our path will be full of twists and turns, and all we will have is what's right in front of your face. And I don't know about you, but seeing this world would be a terrible thing to face without the gospel. So I ask you this morning, if you have not, will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? The one who has shed his precious blood for you, for your sins and my sins. And we're promised if you humble yourself, just like we've seen this morning, and fall at the feet of the cross, there's a glorious truth. There's a glorious promise that you can focus on every minute of every day. You can cast your eyes on that. If you do not accept Christ, if you do not come to him, what do you have? Yeah, all you have is what's right in front of you, day in and day out. In Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul says that he considers the sufferings of this present age, they're not worthy of the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, the things that we worry about and and that capture our attention are worthless compared to the gospel. I want to end this morning, one last last, uh, move in your Bible, go over to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Because this, I want to give you the truth, God's word that you can focus on. The Apostle Paul writes from prison, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And here's the thing that we can focus on when we are saved by grace. Where are you? Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we can focus on. Whatever your Esau is, that's what we can focus on. You are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. So you can focus on these things in our fallen world if you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sin and you've confessed with your mouth and you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Why would we not focus on the fact that we are redeemed and seated with Christ in heavenly places? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, what an awesome truth this is. That no matter what we face, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our position is secured. We are at the, your right hand with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning that we will just, we will just join the Apostle Paul in, say, in saying that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy of the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is nothing that we face that is not from you and through you and to you. To you be glory forever and ever. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.